So we've been um, doing a, an experiment. We've been exploring the life of Jesus Christ chronologically in a sermon series called In His Steps. All of the previous messages are available on our website, friendshipchurch.cc. You can go back and listen to them. Uh, we encourage you to do so, um, especially with, uh, with some of the passages of Scripture. We've addressed some hard sayings of Jesus, some things that Jesus has said that have been difficult to interpret and understand, and so we've really dived into that and, uh, and sought to try to understand what is Jesus really saying uh, when he's speaking in some of these passages. So we've taken the life of Christ and put it in what we feel is pretty close to chronological order so we can walk with Christ, walk in his steps, go where he goes, and hear what he's saying in context of like being a disciple. And so hopefully you feel like that you're just tagging along. You know, you're Rick, the 13th disciple, or, you know, you're Hope, the 13th disciple, or whatever. You feel like that you're right there walking along with Jesus and exploring all of these uh, miracles and healings and teachings as a, a, a firsthand witness. Um, so <clears throat> part four of our series today is called Monument Mentality. Monument Mentality. Right after Jesus, so just to give you a little bit of background in case you weren't here for it, um, Jesus takes his disciples to a town called Caesarea Philippi, a place that Jewish people would not typically go because it was very pagan. Uh, it was very evil. They worshiped the goat god Pan in that town. And so it was at Caesarea Philippi, this place um, where there's a temple court and the temple, um, and people are engaging in worship acts and, and to the goat god Pan. And in between those two places is a rock with this giant hole in the rock, and that, that hole uh, is where they believe the spirits from the underworld would come and go, and that hole was called the gate of hell. And it was at that place in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it was no accident that Jesus took them to that place to make that statement. But it was at that place that Peter made the declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And once they were all in, Jesus told them that this was not a pleasure cruise. He told them that he would suffer, he would be rejected by religious leaders, he would die on a cross, but he would rise again three days later. Then he told his disciples that they must do three things in this order. Deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. This is not an insignificant statement. The cross was a horrific way to die, and he's telling them to expect that going forward. So Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Now, let's, let's look at this first phrase real quickly. I don't want to make, I don't want to belabor the point and make too much out of it, but I just want you to understand this passage of Scripture, this story, the Mount of Transfiguration is, is the story we're covering today. It's covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So three of the four Gospels cover this story. Luke's Gospel says that uh, it happened about eight days later. Matthew and Mark says after six days. So 
people look at little details like this and say, oh, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible because Matthew and Mark says after six days and Luke says about eight on the eighth day or about eight days later. Is this a contradiction? No, because if you've been to grade school math, you know that eight is after six. So if Matthew and Mark says after six days and, it, and Luke says about on the eighth day, then they're not contradicting. And, and sometimes people look at this and they try to make something out of it that it isn't there. They try to say, oh, this, this shows that the gospel, the Bible can't be trusted. They can't even get this detail right. It's kind of like if I were to tell you the story about my daughter being born and I said it happened on a, on a Friday, the day she was born. And I, I would say, oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. It happened on a Friday. But, you know, I, I remember the date. It happened on January 4th. Uh, that's the day my daughter was born. But I may say it happened on a Friday when it really happened on a Saturday. Or it hap- I remember like the end of the week or something like this. I might share a detail that you may say, well, it, January the 4th wasn't on a Friday, Pastor Jason. It was on a Saturday. Therefore, your daughter was never born. That's the way people treat these what they consider inconsistencies in the Bible. If they find one little thing they think is wrong, they're like, well, then the whole thing falls apart. That's not true. It's not true. And especially because it's not a contradiction. Eight days is after six days. So, uh, like I said, I don't want to make too big of a deal about it, but now you can understand that when sometimes people say, oh, the Bible is full of contradictions, tell them, show me one. Just open your Bible, take out your Bible and show me one of the contradictions. Oh, well, well, yeah, uh, uh, I've just heard. Because you haven't read. And if you haven't read and haven't studied, then you don't, op- you don't go to the Bible with an open mind. You're not seeking to understand, you're seeking to disprove. So essentially, this statement is the Jewish equivalent to about a week later. Jesus let a week pass with the words that he had spoken to his disciples, sink in. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. He might have clarified some details about what that means. He might not have. He might have let them just wrestle with what that meant to them. They may have wrestled with their understanding of what the Old Testament prophecies were regarding the Messiah and what Jesus had just said his mission was. So Jesus took Peter, James, and John on a little field trip. He took them Uh, off by themselves to be with Jesus, to have this special little moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we hear these names a lot, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John. We hear these three names a lot when we read the Gospels, and we think that, man, why did they get this special access to Jesus? Why did Jesus play favorites? Well, part of the reason that we think that they got special access is because they, Peter, James, and John, are pulled by Jesus aside, but only three times. When Jesus goes to Jairus' house, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration that we're covering today, and then when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes those three a little bit farther with him. Those are the only three times that those three guys got special access or unique access that the other nine disciples did not. The reason it seems like they ha- it happens a lot is because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling the gospel story. And when they share these stories, at least Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell those three stories, Jairus, Man of Transfiguration, and the Garden of Gethsemane. They tell those three stories. So it seems like it happens a lot. 
It didn't happen nine times. It only happened three times, three times in three Gospels. But it was the same three times that happened. So Jesus isn't necessarily playing favorites. But let's dig into it for just a second. Why would Jesus pull those three guys aside? Why does it seem like he was giving Peter, James, and John more access to himself than he gave the other disciples? Were they more important? Were they more, were they, were they more spiritually mature than the other nine were? Jesus never explains why he gave special access to those three disciples. But here's my interpretation of the, uh, to answer the question of Peter, James, and John were more spiritually mature. Absolutely not. They were not more spiritually mature because if you read the Gospels, you discover that with the exception of Judas, Peter, James, and John were the three most immature, hot-headed, and reactionary disciples in the Gospels. I mean, think about the stories. Almost all of the stories, when someone says something dumb, it's Peter, James, or John. And so are they more spiritually mature? Not yet. Now, after the resurrection and after the book, the, you know, the, the, uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, they get spiritually mature. But at this point, they're still teenagers. And teenagers, no offense, don't always say the right thing at the right time. They, they, they're learning. They're growing. So, no, I don't believe these three guys were more spiritually mature. I believe they got more time because they needed more time. They needed him to pour more of himself into them. Remember, this happened, we, we shared this story just not that long ago. Simon is Simon Peter. Simon was his given name that his dad gave him at his birth. Peter was the name that Jesus gave him. Peter means pebble or stone. And so uh, Jesus renames Simon and calls him Peter. And he's like, oh, man, I'm a big shot now. And then he opens his mouth and says something incredibly dumb. And so Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. So Simon has gone from Simon to Peter, yay, to Satan. Oh, it's a bit of a roller coaster for Simon Peter. He wasn't putting Simon Peter Satan on his business cards. He was pretty much just going by Peter from here on out. He didn't want to be known by either of the other names. But Simon or Peter was the first one to get out of the boat. Remember when Jesus is walking on the water, Peter says, if that's you, Jesus, call me to come out. And Jesus says, it's me. Come on out. The water is pretty fantastic. Uh, he didn't really say that. It was actually in the middle of a really big storm. Uh, that was creative license. So he calls him to come out because Peter says, if Jesus is doing something, I can do it. And that's audacious faith. And that's what teenagers will do. If he's doing it, I can do it. I mean, how many times have teenagers said, well, my older sibling did this, so I can do it. <clears throat> so he steps out of the boat with audacious faith. What does he do? He, look, he gets his eyes off Jesus. He gets his eyes on the waves and he starts to sink. So he's not spiritually mature yet. He didn't walk all the way to Jesus. He starts walking and starts sinking, and then he cries out, Jesus, save me, I'm drowning. Jesus reaches up and picks him up out of the water. So he, he needs a little bit of spiritual maturity. What about James and John? James and John kind of are, are keeping quiet. Not too much is going on. Peter's stealing the show, and he's saying, uh, you know, dumb things. 
And so they're kind of letting him do that. And then James and John and, and the disciples with Jesus, they walk out of a Samaritan village, and the Samaritan village has rejected Jesus' teaching. And so the brothers, James and John, say they ask Jesus, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire on the city and destroy all these people? I mean, out of nowhere. And Jesus is like, whoa, that escalated really quickly. We haven't done that for any town that has rejected me. And these are Samaritans, which, which were half Gentile, half Jew. And your, your thought process is, well, they rejected you, so let's burn them to the ground, Jesus. Let's go all Old Testament on these people. They were hot-headed. And so I don't think Jesus was playing favorites at all. I think he knew he could leave the others and focus some attention on these three guys because they needed it the most. They needed a lot of hands-on discipleship with Jesus because of the tasks they would have after Jesus left. Verse 2, Matthew 17, it says, And he was transfigured before them. So Jesus is on the mountain with Peter, James, and John. And it says, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. The word transfigured is the English word for the Greek word that appears here, metamorphosis, basically. It's metamorpho, um, but metamorphosis. So something in his physical form and his physical features went through a dramatic change. His face and his clothes gave off light. Mark's account of the, this story says that Jesus' clothes were so radiant, so intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. <clears throat> he gave tithe a run for its money. Two times in the book of Revelation, the Bible says that the future kingdom, the future restoration that God brings will require no sun or moon to provide light because the glory of Jesus Christ will be our light. John, uh, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. His first command in Genesis was, let there be light. 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So there's clearly this connection between God's glory and his light. Needless to say, the disciples are standing there, and it is quite a sight to see. Verse 3, it says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now Luke's account of this story says that Moses and Elijah talked to Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Moses and Elijah are talking about Jesus' destination, which is going to be Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. He will be crucified, he will die, and he will be raised from the dead. So Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about that. Luke also says in his gospel account that the disciples were heavy with sleep but became fully awake upon seeing the glory of Jesus standing with Moses and Elijah. You bet they did. You bet. If I, like, exploded with light, you would be like, I can't look, but I can't look away. If you were sleeping, if I have lulled you to sleep with the sultry sounds of my voice, the smooth 
sounds of my voice. If I preached like that, I would probably fall asleep. <clears throat> but if, if, if you start falling asleep and then I explode with light and then two people magically appear, super, I shouldn't say magically, supernaturally appear on the stage with me and somehow you know that's Moses, I don't know how, maybe he's still walking around with spiritual copies of the Ten Commandments, and Elijah... Maybe, I don't know how, but, you know, he's got a chariot of fire still whirling around him or something. You know that it's him, and you're like, well, I'm awake. What is happening? What is going on? So they're fully awake. Jesus is transformed into this radiant, nearly blinding form, and Moses and Elijah have appeared. Now, out of all the biblical characters we could look at, Adam, who was face-to-face with God when he walked in the garden. Enoch, who walked with God and then was no more. He disappeared. He never technically died. Uh, Abraham, David, Daniel, the three Hebrew children, Isaiah, so many more who had a very special relationship with God. Why these two? Why are these two the ones that appeared to Jesus or were with Jesus? What's the significance about these two biblical characters? Well, there's two theories Um, The first one is that they represented the two categories of people who will be in Christ's coming kingdom. So Moses represented all the people who had already died. Remember, he saw the promised land, but he couldn't go into it. Then he died. So Moses, they say, may represent all the people who died or will die before the rapture takes place. And then Elijah, because he was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire and a whirlwind, he didn't experience death like we do. Uh, He might represent the people who are alive when the rapture takes place. So all the righteous living that are caught up together with the Lord in the heavens. I think it's a bit of a stretch. I think it's kind of an over-interpretation. I think it's a bit of a stretch to kind of uh, impose that interpretation on the text. Our goal in, in, in this whole series, all the volumes of In His Steps, is not what do we think it says. It's what is the Scripture saying to us. So just in case this is a, this is a you're you're getting a, a seminary education in ten seconds. Exegesis means to draw out from the text what it's saying. Eisegesis is to read into the text based on what it says. If you don't understand the difference, then watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. Pick one. Every one of them has a specific way they read into news stories. They're not reporting facts. They're reporting their opinion of the facts. They're, importing their, they're reporting their interpretation of the facts. And so sometimes, if you're married, you may understand this as well. Sometimes it's not what you said. It's how you were perceived to have said it. And you can quote what you said verbatim, word for word, but the other person may say, mm, well, that's not your tone. That's not how you said. Yes, that's what you said. I know what you said. Don't repeat back to me what you said. I know what you said, but it's how you said it. There was some, there was some sass, and I don't need that. So exegesis is to draw out of it what it actually says so that we can understand what the Scripture is saying. Eisegesis is to read into it, to try to make the Bible say something that it isn't saying, trying to make the Bible say something we want it to say. And so that's our goal, is, and that's one of the reasons why we haven't shied away against the hard sayings. We need to know what is Jesus saying. What can we draw out of it? Okay, 
The other theory, uh, which I, I kind of tend to uh, lean towards, is that b- why Moses and Elijah, that's the question we're still answering in case I lost you, why Moses and Elijah? Um, Moses represented the law um, because he was the caregiver of the Ten Commandments. Um, he wrote the Torah, um, the first five books of the Bible, Moses, uh, pff, Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He, he's attributed to write those. So that's the law or the Torah. Um, so Moses, when you think of Moses, he represented, he was the personification of the law. Elijah was the personification of the prophets. <clears throat> after, after Philip met Jesus in the New Testament, after Philip met Jesus for the very first time, he ran and he met his, he ran to his friend Nathaniel and he said, we have found him whom, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Joseph. So all of the law and all of the prophets reveal Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. All the law, all the prophets, which is one of the reasons why we tend to think that that's why Moses and Elijah, because they represented those two. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 22, Paul wrote this. He said, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So the law and the prophets reveal Christ. Do we need them to know that Jesus is the Son of God? No, you don't. You didn't need any of the prophets. You didn't need the law. But God used the law and he used the prophets to show us who Jesus was and to reveal our own sinful nature. So Moses and Elijah were two witnesses that testified Jesus was the righteous Son of God and As Luke's account points out, his destination was a cross in Jerusalem. His first coming was about making a way for us to come into his kingdom. His second coming is about finally bringing us into that kingdom and redeeming all of creation. So if you've read the Bible through and you've read the book of Revelation, especially Revelation chapter 11, then you may wonder whether Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 11 that appear during the Great Tribulation. We have no idea. The Bible never names who the two witnesses are other than they are there and they are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ during the Tribulation. So, as an aside, um, does that mean people will be saved during the Tribulation? Yes, they will. Uh, they will be saved because the gospel is being preached. And we see in Revelation 144,000 Jews get saved and accept Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. So during the Great Tribulation, what happens? The Holy Spirit doesn't leave the earth. The church leaves the earth. The Holy Spirit is still here, and people are still being saved. Now, it'll be much harder. So don't say, you know what? I'm going to live my life the way I want, and when the rapture happens, then I'll start living for the Lord. That's dumb. That's really, really, really dumb. Don't do that. Live for Christ now. Because when you try to, if you try to push that, you know, I'm going to live my life. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to do all the drinking and all the partying and all the whatever other people do that don't go to church. I don't know. I grew up in church all my life. So don't do that. Because if you wait into the Great Tribulation, life will be really hard. If you, if those who get saved during the Great Tribulation will most likely have to give their life to stay saved. So uh, I'm not saying get salvation while it's easy. 
but life will certainly be a little bit easier for us. So, Matthew chapter 17, verse 4, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, or three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter's saying, Lord, it's good. It's excellent. It's suitable. It's a good choice that we are here. Now, I, you know, again, we don't know exactly what Peter is saying. So Peter could be saying that it was a good choice that, you know, he, James, and John were there uh, as opposed to the rest of the disciples. Those guys wouldn't appreciate what's going on. They're, they're so, they're not with it, Jesus. You picked the right guys. We don't know if that's what he was saying or if he was just saying, you know, it's, it was a good experience for us to be here and as opposed to something that you got to experience by yourself. Mark's account says that Peter said this because he didn't know what to say on account of being terrified. We're nervous, we're anxious, we're afraid, and we don't know what to say, so we say something that's not quite right. It sounds spiritual. It sounds good. And what I tell people is, you know, I've been, I've been discipling a group of people who've been going through these ministry classes for the last three years. We've been going through. Today they'll take their final exam. And so we're really excited about that. Um, and one of the things I've told them in our internship phase, which has been this semester, is that, and I'm, this is free, I'm giving you this so that you cannot do this. At weddings and funerals, the worst comes out in people. At weddings and funerals, you see the worst in people. You think a wedding is so fun. It's exciting. It is. But sometimes people want to make it about them. And they're not the bride. And they're not the groom. And so it becomes, well, I want to do this. Well, you're not getting married. And so I give a little pastoral advice when we get all the families together at a wedding. I say, folks, I love you. And, and we have, we have a, a, a couple who's going to be married shortly in, in just a couple months. When I, when I get all the family together, the bride side and the groom side, I, I just inform them, I don't need any of you. I just need the bride, and I just need the groom, and they just need me. And the rest of you are all extra. So you may say, well, I'm the maid of honor. I'm the you know, best man. I'm the fourth groomsman. I don't need you. Don't need you. All right, so don't be extra. Be, be, you know, work with us, and then you get to stay. And funerals, unfortunately, people say terrible, terrible, theologically incorrect things at funerals. Well, God just needed another angel. No, he does not. He does not. And saying that to someone who is grieving is a terrible thing to say because it's theologically incorrect. God doesn't need another angel. If he wants another angel, he creates another angel. He doesn't turn us into angels when we die. We are saints. We're not angels. So we are very different than what angels are, created beings, messengers of God. They are, uh, you know, in God's presence. They, they do God's bidding, and God uses them to minister to us, to speak to us, whatever. We don't become angels. So <clears throat> just understand that sometimes when we get awkward, you know, things get awkward, and if you're at a funeral and you don't know what to say, it's real easy. Don't say anything. Don't say anything. Because saying something incorrect is worse than saying nothing at all. And the vast majority of us, the best thing we can do is offer someone what's called the ministry of presence. Be there. 
And if they want to talk, then talk. But don't say, don't, don't say anything, all right? And I forgot to mention, if you have questions, you can text them to the number up there. We may get some questions today. Pastor Jason, you're being rude. <clears throat> That's not a question. Why are you being so rude? <clears throat> anyway, all right. So you can text questions. If we've got any that come in, I'll, I'll answer them at the end. Uh, so far, so good. No questions. Here we go. Okay. So Mark's account says that Peter didn't know what to say. He was terrified. He didn't know what's going on, what is happening. This has not happened before. And now I've got a question. Um, <laughs> so here we go. Um, you know, what's, what's wrong with Peter's statement? Well, Peter has monument mentality. We're going to go through these really quickly. There are plenty of times in the Bible where something important and miraculous takes place. And God told his people to build a memorial there, put some stones and build a memorial. And that when you pass by that place again and for the next future generations, when they ask, why are these stones there? They obviously don't get that way accidentally. Then you tell the story of what God did in the past and as a, as a memorial to what God is going to do for the future. So he gives plenty of times where he says, build a memorial to what I've done. Uh, it's, a, it's a reminder to future generations of God good, God's goodness, God's faithfulness. What's the difference between a memorial and a monument that Peter suggested? Well, it's all about who gets the attention. It's all about who gets the worship. Who's the object of affection? It's, it is absolutely right to give honor where honor is due, but the focus should never be on what man has done, but on God, his faithfulness, his mercy, his compassion, his love, and his goodness. So there's three problems. If you have your bulletins, there's a little handout in there. You can jot notes down. Um, three problems with a monument mentality. The first Monuments are built to honor man's accomplishments. Memorials are built to honor God's accomplishments. You know, with a monument, it's look what my hands have done. Look what I have accomplished. Look what I did. Versus a memorial, which is look what the Lord has done. Every time we pass by this pile of stones, we tell the story of what God has done. Every time we have communion together, that's a memorial for us. We tell the story of what Jesus has done. And so that's the first thing. The second thing, monuments become objects of worship. Memorials make God the object of worship. God didn't want men to build temples. David said, I want to build a temple. And, and previously, they, God, was, uh, God told them to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting, so that it could travel with them wherever they went. Well, they finally settled in Israel. And David said, it's not right that I have a house, but you don't have a house. God's like, I don't need a house. I, am, I created this universe. This entire universe is my house. And David said, yeah, but still, I'd like to build you a house. We'd like to put all your stuff in it. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the, the, the candelabra, all the oil. Basically, I need a storage building. All the stuff you've told us to build. We like to just kind of put that in a building. And so God did not want David to build a temple, but he finally said, okay, fine. But if you're going to do it, this is how you do it. And so when, when he built a temple, he knows, God knows what happens when we build these monuments is that sometimes they, became, they become the object of worship. 
as opposed to worshiping the invisible God that cannot be contained in a building. And number three, monuments emphasize men's past. Memorials emphasize trusting God in the here and now and for what the future holds. We've been where, where we've been versus where we're headed. It's like living with a monument. It's like living, uh, like driving down the road, looking constantly in your rearview mirror. Oh, yeah, that mile marker. Oh, yeah, we just missed Bucky's. Sorry, kids. We, we just passed this. We just passed this. As opposed to your kids saying, hey, why don't you look ahead of you and you can see what's coming in the future so we don't miss the next Bucky's for the next 150 miles. They tell you, you know, hold it for 150 miles and you can go Bucky's. Memorials are a testament to God's faithfulness, God's provision, God's protection, and God's presence as they testify that if God was faithful, then he will be faithful for the future. If I make a promise to you, how do you know that I will fulfill it? You might ask uh, other people to whom I've made promises. Did he fulfill them? Did he keep his word? Did he do what he promised? even when it was difficult, even when it was costly, even when it was painful, did Pastor Jason keep his word? And if you come up with about half a dozen or so people who say, yes, you know, he promised this and he delivered, then you would likely believe me and trust that if I tell you I'll do it, if I make a promise to you, I will do what I say. Do you know that God made over 3,500 promises in the Bible? And not one single promise has been broken or unkept. Out of 3,500 promises, God has proven himself faithful time and time and time again. So when God makes you a promise, you know he is faithful to keep that promise all the way to its fulfillment. There's a song that came out recently on uh, an album by Elevation worship. The song is called Love Won't Give Up. This is what it says. Nothing I want that your love doesn't offer. Nothing I've done that your grace won't cover. It's not over till you say so. You are faithful. God, you're faithful. The chorus says this. The cross is all the confidence I need. Your love won't give up on me. You never make a promise you don't keep. Your love won't give up on me. God has been faithful throughout the entire history of mankind, and God will continue to be faithful today and every day. If in order to keep his promise to redeem mankind, he had to submit to a horrific death on the cross, that cross is all the confidence you need that when God gives his word, he'll keep his word. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This word overshadowed means that this bright cloud was so brilliant that it cast deep shadows on everything else around it. They were enveloped in God's glorious light. This is the second time that the Father has made such a declaration over Jesus. The first time was at Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. Jesus has not done anything other than be faithful 
at the age of around 30 years old. He's standing in the Jordan. He has not performed a single miracle, not a single healing, not taught anything. He's just been a faithful son to Mary and Joseph and a faithful son to the Father. And he gets baptized in the Jordan River, and God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before he had done anything, he, God was well pleased in him, not because of what he had done, but because of who he was, the character and the integrity of his heart. And so this is now the second time. Year and a half, two years later, after the baptism of Jordan, Jesus is now getting the same declaration from the Father. And what's so funny is just when Peter breaks out some blueprints, he's like, give me some scrolls. Give me something to write with. Let me start working on this, these tabernacles. Let me start working on these blueprints to build these tents for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. The Father interrupts him, and he puts attention back to where it needs to be on Jesus. This moment in time has such a profound impact on these young men that Peter and John, in later books that they would write, reference this moment. John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1, 16-18, he said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory, I'm sorry, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So you have two eyewitnesses of this event happening on that day that are testifying what happened. Experiencing God's glory changes you. It does something to you. It does something that you cannot deny. Something on the inside of you has transformed into this new creation. And even if you could go back to the old creation, you would not want to. A powerful with, uh, encounter with God is a revolutionary thing. It's what, it brings what's dead inside of you to life. And it breathes life into dead things. When Moses was on uh, the mountain with God in Exodus chapter 33, he commanded, God commanded them to go to the promised land. But then he said, I'm not going with you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. If we're going to the promised land, you need to go with us. Well, God said, I'm not going with you. He said, uh, because I would consume you along the way. You're a stiff-necked people. You're a rebellious group. You don't do what I command. You constantly grumble and complain. You say you had it better in Egyptian slavery than you've got it right now being free at the mountain of Sinai. So when the people heard this, they began to mourn. They knew that they had no chance to make it if God was not going with them. And so Moses spoke to God, and he said, If your presence is not going with us, then don't tell us to go anywhere. Isn't the fa- Moses said to God, Isn't the fact that you are with us the very thing that makes us distinct from all the other people groups on the earth? Then he asked God, Please, show me your glory. I want to see your goodness. I want to see your greatness. I want to see your splendor and majesty. I want to see your glory. God replied in Exodus 33, 19, he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim my covenant name before you. When Moses stood in the presence of the living God in bodily form, which would have been Jesus, it had a profound impact and effect on Moses. 
Moses' face shined like the sun, so much so that Moses had to put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel could look at him. It had a physical and spiritual effect on Moses. Experiencing God's glory changes you. But the glory on Moses' face that he received from Mount Sinai was a reflected glory from being the presence of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, here is Moses again in the presence of the living God, Jesus Christ, and it's Jesus who's shining like the sun. Not in a reflected glory, but in a radiant glory that was part of his heavenly DNA. Matthew chapter 17, verses 6 through 8, it says, When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces. When they heard the voice of the Lord, they heard, uh, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched him, touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. It all comes back to Jesus. This is the key. Yes, we can and we should learn the law and the prophets. We should read the Old Testament. We need to understand it, but understand it because it all points to Jesus Christ. They all speak of God's incredible love. This from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. It is a love story throughout human history from the very first chapter to the very last chapter of the Bible. This experience at the Mount of Transfiguration where the radiance and glory of God shone through Jesus was just yet another witness to Christ's sinful, uh, I'm sorry, sinless, sinless life and a perfect example for us to follow. So instead of staying in this glorified situation that Jesus was in, Jesus walked down the mountain and he began his eventual walk towards Calvary. So regardless of Moses and Elijah appearing, Regardless of an angel manifesting itself to us, regardless of all the new age and mystical experiences that people point to, may we have eyes for Jesus Christ alone. I'll ask our worship team to come up. If you're a candidate for baptism, go ahead and make your way. Change your clothes and, and uh, meet up on the, one of the front rows up here with, for me. A couple questions. We probably will not get to them all because we're already kind of pushing um, speaking of contradicting in the Bible, why is it that Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord, teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But in the book of James, we're told, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt himself to anyone. Was that the, was um, so Obviously, we, we understand that God does not lead us into temptation. Um, we are put in trials. We're put in tribulations. We are put in times of testing. But um, we don't want to be, uh, we don't believe that God actually leads us into temptation. Um, to go into an in-depth, I probably would have to actually go into an in-depth study on the Lord's Prayer to kind of explain that. So, I will actually leave that because I don't think I can answer it very well today. We'll leave that for another time. I'll try to maybe do some research this week, and we may post a video on that um, later this week. How did Peter know who Moses and Elijah were uh, when he's never seen them? Great question. Maybe Jesus said, hey, guys, hey, look up. Uh, that's Moses. That's Elijah. You know, the guy carrying the commandments, whatever. I don't know. I don't know how they knew it. They just knew it. Maybe Jesus told them, P.S., in case you didn't know, that was Moses and Elijah when they're coming off. 
Uh, it, because the scripture never says that Moses introduced himself. Hi, I'm Moses. Nice to meet you. You know, good to me. I mean, we have no idea how, how they knew other than, you know, probably Jesus told them uh, that would be pretty funny um, how that all transpired. What training did the disciples have before becoming Jesus' disciples? And how long were the disciples under Jewish teaching? Well, they went through the basics, but because they were not very good students, they flunked out and went into their, uh, their dad's vocation. Peter, James, John, and Andrew were all fishermen, which meant they weren't good enough for uh, the Jewish theological school. Every Jewish male went through training, and if they weren't good enough, then they were kicked out. They learned the basics, but then they, were, they went home, and they were taught by their uh, dads what the trade was. Um, so Peter, James, John, and Andrew are not in a seminary school. When Jesus calls them, they're fishing. So they were the not good enoughs, not smart enoughs. They were um, people who had, had not you know, done well in seminary school, and so Jesus called them. Um, what gives the disciples the authority to g- teach God's word? Jesus did. He said, all authority I have received, I give to you. And so Jesus has imparted his authority upon all of us. Uh, And I'm sorry if I'm giving short answers to these questions, uh, but I do have more to say um, in this message. So Matthew 17, 9, this is what it says as they're coming down the mountain. Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone or tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Tell no one this vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anybody what you've seen. There are times when I was growing up, I was entrusted with a secret. Dad would come to me and said, hey, this is what I got your mom for Christmas. Don't tell her. And I felt like so special because I had a secret nobody else knew. And I would, I would see my mom and I'm like, <laughs> you know, and she's like, what are you laughing at? Why are you, why are you looking? What's wrong with your face? I'm like, I know something you don't know. <laughs> and she was like, well, then don't tell me if I don't need to know. And I'll know eventually. You know, I got, I got to share in the excitement. I knew that my dad was going to do something special for my mom, and, and he entrusted me with a secret thing. It made me feel special. It made me feel included. Some visions, some words from the Lord, some experiences with God are just for you. Other people won't understand it. The experiences of Moses, a face shining like the sun, Elijah's departure in a chariot of fire, Daniel and a lion's den, the four Hebrew children in the, in the fiery furnace, they're hard to comprehend for people who've never had to walk a faith-tested life. Not everyone will understand what God is asking you to do. Not everyone will understand what God has promised to do for you. And that's okay. It may not be for them to know. When Jesus gave John the powerful revelation, the, in, in, in John, uh, I'm sorry, in Revelation 10, 4, Jesus told John, don't write this part down. This is just for you, John. It's just for you to see and nobody else to experience. Don't write this down. There are times when God gives us something that's very personal and he doesn't want us to share it with others because sometimes he doesn't want us to be infected with the negativity, the skepticism, and the criticism of other people who are not on the same level and who do not have the same relationship with Jesus Christ that we do. Some messages for God, from God are just for you until they come to pass. That's God loving you as his child. That's God saying, I want to reveal to you secret things, things that are special, things that are hidden. 
The source of Samson's strength was a secret. Psalm 51.6, you delight in truth in our inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God spoke in Psalm 81.7. He said, in your distress, in distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. Psalm 91, it says, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Maybe you've been holding on to a promise from God, and maybe circumstances have only gotten worse since when he originally spoke this promise to you. Maybe so much time has passed between the promise and now that you've, you're wondering if God even spoke to you. Maybe you heard him wrong. Maybe you made it up because it's something you want so badly. In the Bible, there are 3,573 times when God made a promise and he kept every single one of them. If he can be trusted 3,573 times, then I believe he can be trusted for just one more. He can be trusted for a 3,574th time with whatever he's promised you. Whatever the promise was, God is faithful and can be taken at his word. So surrender your fears. Surrender your worries. Surrender all of that to him. If he wants to give you a promise that's beyond your ability to make it happen, all he wants you to do is wait on him and trust him, draw near to him and see him be faithful. Your part is to surrender your timeline. Surrender your desires, surrender your impatience, surrender your methods, surrender your mindset to his and follow him. Not lead him, follow him. Would you stand with us this morning? We're going to worship the Lord in a final song and then we're going to celebrate the commitments of four people in a baptismal.